with an explosion in terms of number of actors involved in the, in the humanitarian sector, coming from very different perspectives, from very different uh, uh, countries, cultures, and so on. That's maybe one reason that can explain that sometimes we may not recognize what is humanitarian action anymore. Now, we may disagree on this a little bit. Calling the next grand bargain, the great leap sideways. This is the podcast from hell. Grand bargain. Decolonizing aid. Humanity. Humanitarian action takes place at the edge of chaos. And to find the right answers, we need smart, honest conversations. That's what this podcast is about. Welcome to Humanitarian. I'm your host, Lars Peter Nissen. This week's guest on Trumanitarian is Raphael Gorsche from the Geneva-based think tank Here Geneva. Raphael must have been really bored during the pandemic because he spent the past couple of years going through every single document he could find from the Interagency Standing Committee, the IASC, over the past 30 years. We are talking about more than 8,000 documents, a colossal task. Based on this research, Raphael has written a report called Thinking about the evolution of the humanitarian sector and exploration within the world of ideas. It's a long and interesting report, and I really admire Raphael's tenacity and grit. He describes the project as a cave exploration in the underground of the humanitarian sector, and it was a real pleasure spelunking with him. Before we jump in, as always, don't forget to share the show with colleagues and friends who may be interested. Review us, like us, uh, let us know what you think. But most importantly, enjoy the conversation. Rafael Gorsche, welcome to Trumanitarian. Thank you for having me today. You have written a report called Thinking about the Evolution of the Humanitarian Sector and Exploration Within the World of Ideas. Why did you decide to write this report? The first reason is a uh, personal interest in, uh, uh, in digging this issue. I've been uh, working in the humanitarian sector for the last 20 years, um, many different positions uh, at, uh, at the field level, at, uh, at the HQ level. And I've been always obviously uh, interested in trying to understand a little bit more how this sector has been changing over the last, uh, the last decade. Um, and aside of it, I have as well a keen personal interest in social science, especially in, uh, in philosophy, in sociology, and international relations. And step by step, naturally, this uh, idea of, uh, of, uh, of a research project that could help a little bit unpack how the humanitarian sector has evolved over the last decades came up. Uh, and some kind of theoretical framework that I might uh, explain in a, in a moment uh, developed. And I thought, okay, this actually could be could be of interest to to me, obviously, but eventually to 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 others in the in the sector. Now it's no secret that there have been a lot of reports about the state of the humanitarian sector, about what it should be and and what it is. Why do we need another report? What is your specific contribution to the discussion? What I've tried is to bring a, I would say, alternative perspective on how to look, uh, to look at change and to mobilize especially what I call here the world of, uh, of ideas and to understand that if we want to understand a little bit more how the sector has evolved, uh, we need to look at how the, the idea of humanitarian aid has changed as well. And I haven't seen a lot of uh, work 
taking this specific approach. Uh, so that's why I thought actually it would be it would be interesting to do so. Tell us about your theoretical and your methodological approach. So the overall approach I've uh, used for this research is based on a few points. The first one and the central run is to recognize the importance of ideas uh, uh, on the way we read reality and we act within this reality. To make it very simple here, the way you will read a reality, the way you will think about reality will make you behave in a certain way, will orientate your action. So if you go very concrete to the humanitarian sector, I will give two examples. One, if you consider a crisis as an emergency crisis, you will orientate your action in a specific way, maybe short term, maybe focus on life saving. But if you see this crisis as a protracted crisis, then you're going to mobilize other ways to actually do humanitarian aid. We can take the other example as well of the uh, migratory situation in Europe, for instance. Some organizations see that through purely a humanitarian perspective, and then your work is mainly providing assistance, providing protection to those, uh, to those people. Other might see that as well as a political crisis, and then you, you uh, consider your action, not only through the humanitarian perspective, but as well having a political engagement here. So this is the first point, is really to consider that the way you do things, the way you act, are influenced by the way you think about the reality. So that's the first point. The second element of my overall approach is to acknowledge that each organization, so let's say each organization uh, involved in the humanitarian sector, mobilize specific way of thinking about humanitarian action. And the specific way of thinking about humanitarian action orientate the way they do humanitarian action easily. We can take many different examples. The way MSF, for instance, Doctor Without Borders, think about humanitarian aid is completely different from the way the UNDP, for instance, consider humanitarian action. There might be some similarity, obviously, uh, uh, but there are different ways of considering what humanitarian action is. So in then humanitarian action is uh, uh, a diverse concept. It's not only one thing that everybody agrees on, it's different things. So this is the second element. The third element is to consider that within the humanitarian sector, each organization will bring its specific way of thinking about humanitarian aid. Okay? So it's a space where different ways of reading humanitarian action confront each other. And if you step back, you can actually identify some dominant way of thinking. Uh, so this is the third uh, element. So the idea then is to try to grasp those dominant way of thinking to understand or to give some kind of partial explanation on how the humanitarian sector have changed. And then the fourth element is to try to understand how, why, those dominant way of thinking have evolved over the last decades. Mm -hmm. So that's a bit the overall approach that I've used to anchor my, uh, my project, my research. So that's very clear to me. We tell stories and those stories shape the way we see the world. Each of us tell different stories and then we find about whose stories is the right one or the best one when we sit around the campfire. And those stories orientate the way you act in this world. And then some stories win over other stories and come to dominate the sector. 
And some stories indeed will be more dominant than others. Where did you find the data? So the methodology I used, um, in theory, what I should have done is to look at each actor in the sector to try to grasp what are their way of thinking, how those way of thinking translate into reality uh, to see how they have evolved. But you imagine the amount of work that this could have uh, been. So I use actually a shortcut. Uh, I look at within the humanitarian sector, the dominant social group that may exist in the sector. And I've tried to capture those way of thinking of this dominant social group. The fact is that in the humanitarian sector, there is one dominant social group, which I would assume that everyone will agree on. It's the international humanitarian system, which is coordinated by the ISC, the Interagency Standing Committee. Uh, this group is mainly at the core huh, uh, uh, some key UN agency, but we can see around uh, some key DAC donors, some uh, international NGOs. When you look at uh, the amount of funding, the normative role that they have, and so on. I've said, okay, let's consider this group as a dominant social group. And therefore, I've tried to capture those way of thinking about humanitarian aid and how they have evolved. And for that, I look at the last 30 years of the humanitarian sector, which come back to 91, when the ISC was actually formalized. And I went through all ISC documents, so all documents that the ISC produced over the last 30 years. So not just the ISC itself, but also the agencies that comprise the IASC. So if I want to be uh, precise, so all documents that the ISC as a collective produced, so this can be strategic notes, can be minutes of meetings, these are quite important, but as well all documents that the ISC referred to in its discussion, So yes, it can come back to some key document that some agency have, uh, uh, have produced, agency or NGO or donors. But because as well, uh, I'm saying that way of thinking oriented the way we do things, I've looked as well on how they translate into action. So for that, I look at all HRP or CAP, so humanitarian response plan and consolidated appeal process over the last 30 years and try to see some connection between the narrative, the discourse, at the ISC and the translation into action. So in the end, it's about 8,000 documents that I had to review for this uh, for this project. So you read 8,000 documents from the ISC? I read 8,000 documents. Raphael, we need to give you a medal. Thank you. When reading all those documents, what did you find? So what is interesting, what I saw here, I saw three things. I saw some degree of stability on the way humanitarian action is being considered and deployed. I've seen change and evolution as well. And I've seen some forces, some mechanisms that may help us understand how this evolution takes place. So in the second chapter of my research, I try to go through or to present an overall evolution of this way of thinking and acting about humanitarian action. I insist here, these are the dominant one. It doesn't exclude others. These are patterns that you need to look at when you actually step back to see how colorful or all the color over time have changed. 
So I can give you a few, uh, few examples. Maybe we don't need to go into all, all, all details. Otherwise, it might take, uh, uh, it might take too long. Uh, but for instance, if you look at the scope of humanitarian action, basically what activities, what action is considered humanitarian. This has evolved over time. Uh, beginning of the 90s, to make it short, it's mainly life-saving activities. And step by step, you see other domains coming in. Livelihood, for instance, middle of the 90s. The question of uh, uh, preparedness as well to, to, to natural disaster at the end of, uh, of 2000. So what I want to say here, the scope of humanitarian action has globally expanded over the last 30 years, with few exceptions like the question of uh, uh, reintegration of, uh, of, uh, of combatants, for instance. Uh, for the one who were in the in this sector uh, in the 90s, you may remember that this was a key issue being uh, discussed. It is not there anymore. But one obviously of the turning points in this expansion of the scope of humanitarian action, it's um, when protection was considered really as part of the scope of humanitarian aid. Until 97, basically, it's humanitarian action is mainly a question of assistance. After 97, it's assistance and protection. Again, you need to step back here because you can find examples uh, of uh, organizations that did consider protection huh, as part of humanitarian action taking, for instance, the ICRC. So you see an expansion of the scope in humanitarian action, a broadening of the mandate. What else did you find? So this is one example of uh, the, the, the expansion of the scope. Another, I think, um, example which is quite interesting is the evolution of the connection between humanitarian and development. Uh, beginning of the 90s, actually, when you look at ISC documents, there is very little discussion about the connection between humanitarian and development. The discussion are more on the link between humanitarian and peace. Mm. Uh, so let's put it that way, two separated sectors. Mid-90s, the discussion really come up on the table, maybe as well due to the evolution of the type of, uh, of crisis, where there is a recognition that, okay, humanitarian action needs as well to be considered in a time that will last, in crisis that will last. We're not talking about looking at long-term humanitarian action, but considering that, okay, it will last. So how do we manage with that? And step by step, what we see is... Uh, um, a way of a linear way of thinking about this link between humanitarian and development. Basically, there is a crisis. It's time for humanitarian action. Then it's time for rehabilitation. Then it's time for development. It's very linear in this approach. Um, and let's say over the last what eight years, maybe now we have a new narrative coming up with this labeling of protracted crisis, where this linear approach is being challenged and where humanitarian and development can actually come together at the same time, even though they remain two separated sectors, at least until, uh, until now, this might change in the future, uh, who knows. So again, it has, it has evolved. Uh, eventually, another example is the question of who is part of the humanitarian sector, or more specifically, with part of this international humanitarian system. Beginning of the 90s, it's mainly the UN. I don't say here that the NGO do not do things, they do plenty of things. But if you look at the international system at the social group, there will be the side of it. And it's really uh, 
second part of the 90s that come together, these three pillars, which are the UN, the international NGOs, and uh, Western donors mainly, that the cluster reform will really reinforce. And we, we, we end up beginning of 2000 with these three pillars that defined who is part of humanitarian action. And obviously, we can see that this has evolved over the last few years as well. We speak more about an ecosystem. The question of the role of national government is coming up more strongly in the discussion, in action as well. The question of local organization, the question of the global south. So as well here, there is a change on how to think who is part of, uh, of humanitarian uh, action. So these are some of the evolution that I, uh, that I see. And they don't come from one day to another. It takes time. There are other examples that show some stability. And I would like to mention two because I think they are important in trying to understand how things, why things change that way. One is a, is a question of the approach by domains. I call it domains and not sector. Usually we call it approach by sector, but then you're getting confused with the wording humanitarian sector. So the approach by domain. In beginning of 90s, it is there. Mid-90s, it is there. 2000, it is there. We think domain. We are organizing domain. Humanitarian action needs to take place according to domain where you have different policy, different uh, 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 um, uh, protocols that apply to specific domain. Um, so this has globally not changed, but what I'm wondering if today there might be step by step a push to challenge this approach by domain, uh, which is maybe coming from the importance of cash, multipurpose cash and social protection. And even now, I start to hear as well some people uh, pushing to review eventually the approach by cluster. So whether there is a change here, that's a question. Um, the last point in terms of stability, which is maybe the most important little ideas, which is in the end the foundation of everything, might seem absolutely obvious to everyone because it has become so natural. It's this idea that the humanitarian sector is a sector in itself. And this has not always been the case. I mean, 100 years ago, we didn't speak about the humanitarian sector. Now we do speak about the humanitarian sector. So these ideas that humanitarian action is an object in itself, a sector in itself, is something that over the last 30 years has not changed. And it, we will see it has some impact on how to understand how this evolution takes place. The story you tell makes sense to me, Raphael. The shifts you describe tally with my own understanding of how the sector has evolved. But can you also tell me why this has happened? What drives the change you see? So this maybe have been the part that motivates me the, the most in trying to understand why this evolution takes place. Um, it's, a, it's a tricky exercise. Um, what I've tried here was not to look at each ideas, each way of thinking, each context, each crisis to try to unpack the specific situation, but more to look at, can I identify trends in this evolution over the last 30 years? And to explain a bit the approach I took, you imagine that all this way of thinking and acting, you represent them as a play-doh, okay? This play-doh, according to this way of thinking and acting, has a specific shape, specific color, specific texture. And over the last, over 30 years, this Play-Doh changes shapes, changes color, changes texture. And to try to understand 
what are the forces and mechanisms that will make these Play-Doh changes? Uh, and what is very interesting here is that we can actually identify some forces, some mechanisms, which I consider are to some degree autonomous to the actors that compose the humanitarian sector. Basically, forces that are not controlled uh, voluntarily by those actors. So I would like to give a few examples eventually that we, we, we understand a bit that. Um, if you look at the composition of the humanitarian sector, so you have this dominant group and then other actors will coming in this sector. And this leads to two forces of opposite nature. One is that when an actor comes in a social group, this actor will be encouraged to behave more or less the same way than the social group, to think more or less the same way. So to some extent, the more actors come in, the more it's going to stabilize this way of thinking and acting. But in the same time, if there are many actors coming in, and if those actors are more diverse, it impacts as well this play do it impacts as well this way of thinking and, and doing. And basically, it tends to uh, explode to some extent this way of thinking and doing this, this play do And this is, I think, what we can see a lot over the last few years with an explosion in terms of number of actors involved in the, in the humanitarian sector coming from very different perspectives, from very different uh, uh, countries, cultures, and so on. That's maybe one reason that can explain that sometimes we may not recognize what is humanitarian action anymore, because it goes a bit everywhere. That's really interesting. Try, try to make that concrete. Who are the new kids on the block, and what do they want? Well, the new kids on the blocks are obviously organizations what we call the Global South. Uh, I will insist a lot about players in Asia. I will insist a lot as well on uh, some national government. Asia is again, I think, a very good laboratory of what could be the humanitarian action in, in the future. Look at the BRIC country to some extent. Uh, China, eventually, I mean, we've been talking about China for quite some time. Do we see them more? A little bit more, but maybe, maybe, uh, maybe we're going to see them more in the, in the future. We speak now about the private sector as well. And those players, were not so much part of the discussion 20 years ago, at least part of the international humanitarian system. Now they are, maybe not enough huh, for, for, for some, that comparison to 20 years ago, yes. And what is the different story they're telling us? What is it they want? I think this will depend on which actor you're talking to. Uh, but if, we take, uh, uh, if you take a few examples, uh, I think the question on how to approach the role of national government in a natural disaster has evolved drastically over the last 20 years. Uh, we can start seeing the first shift really at the beginning of, uh, of 2000. And I think here some governments more capable to drive their own response to, to, to crisis uh, had an influence on this way of, uh, of thinking and this way of acting. I don't need to recall uh, this day the debate about the localization agenda. I think it's as well quite clear what is being, uh, what is being asked. Um, my point here is that with this diversity of factors, it impacts this dominant way of thinking and acting, but in a way that might not be controlled voluntarily by some key organization or by the sector uh, in its own. And then I, I can give two other examples of those 
forces and mechanisms mm -hmm. that shape uh, that shape those way of thinking and, uh, and acting. Another example which I find quite interesting it's what I call the concept of internalization. It's been that an, an idea about what humanitarian action, humanitarian action is, is more or less internalized within the sector, within actors, within the international system. And the more this idea and this way of acting is internalized, so the less it is questioned, the more stable it is. So if you look at the example of this idea of the humanitarian sector as a sector in itself, this idea is deeply, deeply encore in, uh, in the sector, not only in the international system. It's not something that we're going to question every day. We don't even think about it. So the more an idea is internalized, the more it is stable and will have difficulty to evolve. So you can see some, some, some differences. The question of the link between humanitarian and peace is still very much uh, uh, debated these days. So we can wonder how much it is actually being internalized. Uh, the question of the approach by domain, even though it starts to be questioned today, is still something that we don't really discuss about because it is internalized. And my point here with this concept of uh, internalization is that when a new idea about what humanitarian action could be comes to the public space, this idea will have more chance to become dominant if it doesn't confront with another ideas, which is more internalized. So if we say it the other way around, if this new idea challenge some more internalized way of thinking about humanitarian action, then its chance to, be, to become dominant will decrease. Let's take some, some example. I think the question again of humanitarian and, and peace is quite interesting in this regard. Um, if you look at the end of 2000, for the one who will remember, there was this tentative to actually have a global approach to peace in which humanitarian action will fall in. What was used at that uh, period was the Brahimi report, and there was a huge pushback from the international humanitarian system, the NGOs, but as well UN agencies. And one way to interpret that, it's one way, it's not the only way, is to see that, okay, at this moment, what was at stake was to preserve the fact that humanitarian action is a sector in itself. So it confronted with this deeper... Sorry, just say again. So it confronted with this deeper idea. Uh, and maybe the last example I will to try to illustrate those forces and mechanisms which are to some degree autonomous to agent. It's what I call a limited range of possibilities for a new way of thinking and acting about humanitarian action. Basically, what you can see over the last 30 years that there is no radical change on how to approach humanitarian action. This change is progressive. My point here is to say you cannot jump from a way to think about humanitarian action, which is completely different from what it is at a specific moment. It goes progressively. Might change, huh? maybe in the future, I don't know about that. But over the last 30 years, the change has always been progressive. 
So your main message is actually fairly conservative. We have some anchors. We are a sector organized around principles. You didn't say that, but that's what I was thinking. We have decided to split our world up into domains and we have our careers around those domains. So we're not going to touch that either. So we are fairly change resistant system is what I hear you saying. Do you think that's right? You're right on the fact that change at least over the last 30 years have never been radical. That has never happened over one night. It takes time. Some ideas are more difficult to challenge than others because they are so internalized. Uh, but nevertheless, there is an evolution over the last 30 years. So change did happen. Yes, slowly, but not radically, not from one day to, to another, absolutely. So after all this work, after going through all of these documents, where do you land? What, what's your main conclusion? So some of the thinking I'm proposing uh, at the end of, uh, of this paper, one of them concerned um, the room for manoeuvre, the, the, the possibility for actors to actually drive change. If we assume that there are actually forces and mechanisms which are autonomous to agents, to actors, when I say autonomous, they are not independent, in the sense that they are produced by, by, by the relationship uh, by the interaction that actors have amongst themselves. I mean, you're in a, in a group, the group itself creates some rules. But if we do uh, assume, or at least for the purpose of the, of the reflection here, that those forces and mechanisms autonomous to actors actually exist, then you can actually question, but uh, what is left to actors to actually uh, drive change in a voluntary uh, uh, manner? And this is a question that I leave open. I don't want to say that there is absolutely no margin for actors to drive change. I think we have many examples of organizations bringing up new ideas. The question of the localization, the question of the protection. You needed some, some people, some organization to push the debate. So yes, actors do have influence. But how much in return they are as well, they are as well impacted by those forces and mechanisms? We can question that. Uh, and the fact is, if you look at all ISC documents, I've never seen one discussion about how to drive change. I don't see that those discussions did not exist. Maybe they do, but at least I haven't seen that through those papers, which make me think that maybe we're not aware of those kind of forces and mechanisms, maybe not all. Well, I can mention three documents the humanitarian reform, the transformative agenda, and the grand bargain. Those were all reform attempts, weren't they? Maybe two points to react to that. If you look at the cluster reform, I don't think the cluster reform was, uh, but the paper of the cluster reform uh, was a theory of change as such. I think this was a process of internalizing the idea that the humanitarian sector needs to be coordinated between the UN, between the NGO, between the donors, keeping in mind that the one in charge are the UN, which is something which has never changed over the last 30 years. Huh? This is a kind of very, very stable. Um, but regardless of that, yes, you see some document that write to, or initiative that write to bring changes. But I've never seen in those documents or in those discussions, the consideration that there might be some forces and mechanisms that we should take into consideration to drive 
this change, to ensure that this change will actually take place the way we want. What I hear you saying is that we tell a story about change, but it's not really about change. It's just another story about us. At least we have a partial picture of how change takes place. And we play with this partial picture. And with the work I propose, it's maybe to complete a bit this partial picture. I don't think we'll ever end up to something exhaustive, obviously, but it brings additional elements to try to think on how change could happen in the in the future. Uh, even though, again, I, I think I left open and my personal feeling that our margin for manoeuvre as an actor for driving change exists. Uh, but what is interesting is to look at how those dominant social groups will evolve. So basically today we have the international humanitarian system under the, the, the coordination of the UN still mainly, mainly Western, even though it starts to expand a little bit more. But maybe in the future, there are other scenarios that could happen. Maybe in the future, the humanitarian sector, there won't be any more dominant social groups. You will have just social groups mobilizing different ways of approaching humanitarian action and humanitarian aid. So the humanitarian sector will be completely uh, extended. But maybe due to ge geopolitical change, you will see new social groups coming up that will bring their own way of looking at humanitarian action. And eventually, the, the, the last thing I would like to, to mention, and I think this is more for own eventually personal uh, benefit. Earlier, I took the example of this Play-Doh that represents this idea to think about humanitarian aid and to do humanitarian action. Uh, and I think if we want to be a little bit more open, we may try as a kind of thought experiment to play with this Play-Doh. So we all have our own Play-Doh on how we think about humanitarian action. Just like to try, let's try to do this exercise where we take this Play-Doh with our hands and we give him another shape, we give him another color, we give it another uh, texture and we, and we see where it brings us. My point here being to actually challenge our own perspective on what humanitarian action is to just open the field of possibilities for what it could be in the future. But at the same time, after having read the report, I was left wondering, what happens when you don't take money and power into account, but only look at the stories we tell? Specifically, we all know there's an issue around accountability to affected population versus accountability to donors. So what happens when you only look at what the big organizations are saying about themselves and is it possible that maybe they're telling a story designed to impress the donors rather to solve the problem of accountability to affected populations? What, what is the implication of this potential bias for your research? On the first point on the question of power, the evolution of this dominant way of uh, thinking and acting are no stranger to power dynamics. Uh, I mean, obviously, all this is... Uh, product is the product of interaction amongst actors. So if you want to understand how this evolution takes place, you need to dig into those interactions, uh, which I try to do in, a, in one sub part of, uh, of the research. Um, I think what is important to highlight here is that regardless of your positioning within this sector, each actor can have a role, a function in influencing those narratives obviously to different degrees. Uh, that what we can call, for instance, norm entrepreneur, 
the one that bring a new idea to the to the to the table. Uh, lately, on the localization agenda, we can uh, mention the near network, for instance, who are really pushing for that. So they do have an uh, an influence here. Uh, but if you look at this relationship amongst actors, that is true that two are coming out very strongly, and I guess this won't be a surprise to anyone. One is the ISC as a collective, and more specifically, the core group of the ISC, so to make it shorter, the main UN agency. Uh, but what we can see that most of the time, they actually don't play this role of norm entrepreneur. They don't bring new ideas on the table as a collective. I want to insist on that. Their role is more the one of what I can call a critical agent. It means that if you want this idea to become dominant, you need to have them on board. Without them, the chance for a new idea to become dominant is much more uh, uh, difficult. So you see this um, this key role that they that they play as a, as critical agent. And the other actor that come up very strongly is um, I call the, I call it here the UN Secretariat. So basically, the vision that is inspired by the Secretary General of the UN. When you see some kind of major push on some thematic over the last 30 years, I'm talking about human rights, I'm talking about peace, I'm talking about development, all this come actually mainly or is pushed by the UN Secretary General. So their impact is actually uh, huge. So I think it can reflect uh, the power dynamic that exists currently in the sector, but we should not roll out the influence that other actors can have on that. So it's not a level playing field. It's hard for new ideas to survive, and probably the ones that it's hardest for are the ones that run contrary to the institutional interest of the large organizations. So I don't know how much it is, again, their interest, because I, I don't know how much they think that way. They always think that way. But in the end, yes, if you have a new idea, which is not taking getting traction from the ISC, which is, by the way, a radical idea. So coming back to this progressive approach. And if this idea challenged some more internalized way of thinking about human action, like the fact that the humanitarian sector is a sector in itself, yes, good luck to have this uh, new idea becoming uh, dominant indeed. Yeah, I think you see that exactly with the NIR network, for example, who broke through during the World Humanitarian Summit, did a great job in terms of extracting a promise of 25% of funding going to local organizations. And they really bullied their way in to get that out of, of the summit. And I thought it was great. But then look at practice today. We are redefining the, what local means. We are finding creative ways of calculating. We are tying ourselves into prinkle shaped nuts just to keep control. I mean, I think you have uh, a great point here. This question of localization is to some degree new in the sector. I mean, in 2000, we were not talking about local actors the way we do today. So yes, there is an evolution in narrative. There is an, an evolution in the field. You look at the composition of HTC and so on. Might not be to the expectation of, uh, of many. There is an evolution. It's slow. I think I identify some reason why it's slow. Certainly not all. Uh, and I think the question of localization shows that the idea is not that that yet is not yet that much internalized in the way we think about humanitarian action. I really like your analysis, and I, I like the purity of your approach and so on. But if you would hand me the play-doh for two seconds, I'd like to reshape it. 
not as a criticism, but more as a complementary way to look at the problem you're tackling so that we can learn new things. And so now that I have this Play-Doh, what I want to do with it is that I want to forget everything about ideas. I want to do away with all the little stories we tell ourselves. I want to look at a marketplace where you have five customers, the five major donors, and three providers of services, and they all begin with UN and then end with something else. And then I want to analyze the market dynamics when you have a combination of what is called an oligopoly, so an extreme concentration of power on the supply side of things with only a few actors, and an oligosopony, so an extreme concentration of power on the demand side of things. And I want to forget everything about what these actors say, but just look at money and what they actually do. How does the money flow and what are the shifts in the dynamics? I think that would be a really interesting complement to your analysis. So I think you have a very good point on the fact that uh, this research which I assume like any other one, bring some element to try to impact a situation, an issue, a reality. It's like you put uh, glasses on the reality and according to the glasses you use, the methodology you use, the approach you use, you will see different things. So I'm proposing one specific uh, approach that brings specific elements. But yes, there are many others to, uh, to consider. Uh, well, you, you you can take your chance and try to put these glasses through the market lens, more of eventually a, a liberal economy uh, uh, approach. I don't know what will come up out of it. Uh, maybe you should uh, uh, you should try. But maybe this leads to the question of accountability you mentioned uh, a bit earlier. Uh, whether this sector is actually accountable uh, to people who are supposed to to support. It's difficult for me to answer, but the only element of answer I can give you that the question of accountability to affected population is a concept which is new, absolutely new in terms of policy, in terms of action, and so on. So we see more exercise now trying to get the perspective of, uh, of affected population. But again, it's new to a limited level. So maybe this might answer part of your, uh, of your question. The fact that we're only talking about this now is a problem in itself. But I think the deepest problem is that we actually have to define a project in order to become accountable to the people we say we serve. That should be automatically generated by the way we do business. And it should be so that if you're not accountable to the people you serve, you go out of business because you don't have any customers. So this is where I'm always um, in between with this kind of, uh, of, of answer because when I do this kind of research, I on purpose try not to get to have any opinion about what humanitarian action is or should be. So it's not an evaluation. I try to avoid judgment. I just try to take the reality like it appears. I will not say like it is, but at least as it appears to, to me through my, uh, through my research. So therefore, I, I haven't tried to question whether the way it has evolved is actually positive or negative because it will have, I think, impacted the quality of, uh, uh, of my work. Um, but let's assume it is a problem. Uh, I think we can fairly say that, yes, more accountability, particularly uh, speaking, will actually be, uh, be useful. For me, what is interesting is to try to understand why it did not happen before. What could make this happen better or, or, or bigger in the future? 
to, to try to understand how things uh, move on, which I try to bring some element of answers, not all, obviously, in this project. Raphael, congratulations on giving birth to a really interesting report. It's a good read. And I look forward to seeing what you're going to spend the next couple of years doing. Maybe not another 8,000 IAC document, I, I hope. Maybe not, but some ideas are, are, are coming up. Thank you so much, Lars Peter. Thank you. About the rights and the freedom to be, for people to choose their path in life and dream. Souls of men beyond what you see. Stages are different for each who will lead. Cycles of outsiders that get fat checks, fly in, fly out of places with slums and jets. Ask better questions, pick apart, educate, and no one is safe. We're here to build and debate. We are, we are searching for more. Open up your mind beyond rich or poor. For the truth, you've been warned. Humanitarian. <laughs> <laughs>